Uh, hello, this is a podcast. It's called Recovered AF. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm one of the co-hosts. My buddy Kyle is the other co-host. Now he's going to say something. Yeah, this is just our regular disclaimer. Uh, we're not affiliated at all with any 12-step program whatsoever. Like we always say, we're just a couple of dudes sharing our experience. And we have a guest today that we are going to have a conversation about some of her experience and just see where the hour takes us. So thanks. Okay, yeah. So with that, I'll uh, welcome our guest. Her name is Jenny. What's up? Not a lot. Thank you guys for having me on. I think this is a pretty cool deal that you're doing. I've got to hear a few of the podcasts, and and uh, I like how it's so authentic and just get to hear people tell their stories and, and their experiences with recovery. So thanks for letting me be a part of that. Absolutely, yeah. <clears throat> I was really excited to uh, get you on just because I've heard your story before, and, and you have some cool life experience and, um, you know, being a part of the program and then kind of trying to do this thing without the program and then being a part of the program again. And so it's kind of cool to, uh, get you on here. And, uh, also you, you actually are, uh, Megan's sponsor, which is cool. And you guys have some experience recently of kind of going through the work again, which was, I thought was pretty cool. So Megan's awesome. Yeah. Um, She's got to be kind of a co-sponsor for me too. So, you know, she's, she's got her head on straight and she likes to call me on my bullshit. So (laughs) Megan's been really good for me. That's good. Yeah. Um, usually where we start these things off at is kind of your, um, your initial intro to a 12 step fellowship. And I know yours was pretty early on, wasn't it? (laughs) It was. Yeah. I was, um, really young when I first got, uh, associated with a 12 step program. Um, and actually, it wasn't initially a 12-step program. I, uh, I started drinking when I was, oh, I don't know how. I know I was in fifth grade, and I've, I think you're 10 or 11 in fifth grade, something like that. So mm-hmm. I started drinking then, um, going to a friend's house and getting in their dad's liquor cabinet and, and just getting after it. And um, every time we did it, she would get really, really sick. And I get really, really sick, but I get really, really happy, you know. Mm-hmm. And I knew, I knew that was my gig. Like it had even the playing field for me, and uh, and so I started rolling with that and didn't really stop um, until I stopped. Um, so when I was in about junior high, um, I thought it'd be a good idea to take uh, some vodka and a couple actually a twelve pack of beer and, and and put it in my locker in junior high and. Um, <laughs> It was homecoming, though, so, I mean, it seemed logical to me. It still kind of seems logical to me, but it seemed logical to me at the time. I got caught with it. Um, the powers that be decided that there was probably a pretty big problem that a kid that was that young had that much alcohol and whatever and uh, sent me to Pathfinders, which is a place here in town that that had uh, 12-step meetings. But they let me go there for half of my school day. Like they, I think they just were sick of dealing with my shit. And so I'd, I'd go to school till lunchtime, and then I'd ride a bus over to Pathfinder, and then I'd get to stay there the rest of the day, supposedly, you know, solving my alcohol problem. And mostly it was just a really cool place for me to drink coffee and smoke cigarettes and hang out with these really old dudes. And um, I didn't, I didn't recover at all. But that was my first experience with mm-hmm. 12-step programs. And... Um, when I tell my story kind of in hindsight, um, it's really important because that's where the seed was planted. You know, even though it did absolutely no good at the time, like I had no desire to not drink. I had no intention of trying to not drink. Um, I didn't give a shit what their steps said or what they were sharing about really, but I knew it was there when the time came and that was, that was later down the road, my story. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. That's pretty good. Um, I got caught. I got caught in high school too, uh, at a dance, and uh, I just had to go to like um, after-school counseling with all the rest of the kids that got caught, and they'd ask us if we drank that week, and we'd say no. Well, like I was in there with marijuana smokers, and I was the only drinker, um, and uh, that's all we had to do, though. I didn't get like a half a day off, and get to go hang out at Pathfinders and smoke cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, that sounds, isn't that legit? That sounds better. <laughs> when she told that gig. story, I was like, that yeah. is so sweet. <laughs> right. So that was, that was like you said, junior high, high school? Junior high, wow. yeah, ninth grade. Good work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, so what happened? So that was your first experience. Then, like, how long was it between then and before you had, like, 
maybe sought this out. Did you see? Uh, did you seek the twelve steps out the next time that you there was a problem, or did they again appear in your life via like a third party? Um, the next time that the twelve steps were actually in my life, that that I actually became involved and um, started wanting to do it for me. That that was it was my idea. Things had gotten rotten enough that um, that I knew I had to do something. And like I said, that that seed had been planted when I was really young. Now between ninth grade and and that point when which was 1996, so I was 26 years old um, when I first got sober. But I had had a lot of stints with like I might show back up at meetings or I might call my old alcohol counselor or I'd wreck some cars and you know I'd gotten into some scuffles with people that had hurt me pretty badly, and I got into some bad drug deals, and, you know, just those kind of things throughout that whole period of time. Um, I blow up my marriage. I got I got married. <laughs> my whole life's kind of screwy, but um, <laughs> so I started, I met a guy who was, who was a great codependent. I mean, he just was. He was super awesome at being a codependent, and I was 17 years old, and so we forged my letter of consent and got married, um, had kids, did that whole deal, but during that time, like I, anytime I'd start to feel like I was tied to anything or like I had any responsibility or any kind of control over me, I'd freak out. And so I got real drunk one time and uh, drove to Albuquerque with my best friend. And um, he almost had our, our marriage annulled over that. And so I, I had a lot of scrapes with some crazy shit. And then I'd always be really sorry afterwards. You know, I'd be like, oh shit, you know, I got to do something. And so I'd, I'd, pledge to get sober or I'd go back to a couple meetings or one time I just swore off and quit drinking for a year you know and and that seemed like the right thing um and then after I got married I got pregnant twice and both of those times well the first time I quit drinking completely the entire time I was pregnant and uh that was good that's that's a good idea the second <laughs> time um I did not that I was I drank during my pregnancy and um and really felt some kind of way about that you know but the level of denial that we can put ourselves into and, and tell ourselves that it's okay, um, you know, I just would do better. I just would do better, and I would not drink for a period of time. And, um, yeah, so, and then, um, shoot forward to when I, was, when I was 26 years old, and things had just escalated. I mean, I was a, like I said, I had a really good codependent. I was married. Um, he kept the kids out of the way of the drinking for the most part. Uh, not that they didn't see some really horrible things. I mean, there's there's some horrible stories, but um, for the most part, he would be the one that would take care of them while I was out doing whatever my antics were. And I was I was the worst wife. I mean, they're yeah, the worst. And uh, but he he took care of all that stuff. And so I it took me a long time to get to that point of pain that we have to get to, you know, um, to where I was willing to look for a way out, you know, to where I knew that I couldn't do that anymore. And I was going to do absolutely everything to where that was not the answer. You know, it, not drinking could not be the answer. Like I just could not, I remember being in high school and running around with a friend and, you know, we'd, we'd been at a party where we actually got a gun pulled on us the night before. And she was real freaked. She was like, and she decided drinking was the problem with that. And I'm like, you're crazy. Like, drinking is not the problem. Like, it's the people that had the gun that are the problem. Like, we just won't hang around those people. But And so she was going to quit drinking. And I'm like, well, you quit drinking. You can find other friends because, like, that's not. <laughs> not on the table. You're right. Yeah, yeah, that wasn't even supposed to be part of the discussion. Um, so, the, yeah, the last night, my last drunk, um, wasn't my worst drunk. I'd done a lot worse things. You know, I'd done things like. Uh, with it being Easter, you know, that's kind of a, a trigger for me. I had one Easter gotten super drunk with a family member and, uh, and the husband had to go to work that day cause he worked for the refinery. And so he had to go to work and, um, leave the kids with me. And so I just loaded the kids up in the car, drunker in hell and kept drinking. And that's how my kids spent that Easter, you know, and, uh, family members found out about it and came over to intervene. Uh, my parents did and or my mom and my sister, I guess, and and uh, I think my son was probably about four, and my daughter was two, 
And um, we were hiding out in the house, you know, because I knew I was real drunk and the family was going to give me holy terror hell about being real drunk with kids on Easter. <laughs> and so they were on the outside of the house knocking on the doors trying to get in. And my son got excited and yelled for his grandma and I slapped him so hard I knocked him off the bed, you know, and that's, that's, that's one of those things. And I mean, those are the things as drunks, we think, shit, that would stop us, you know, mm-hmm. having that. Why would you not stop? And and that for me is is that proof that I didn't have any choice. Like I I couldn't, mm-hmm. you know, without some kind of help. So, what one time my parents just if this makes you feel any better, one time my parents decided to have a a party the night before Easter. They were pretty young, and when they when they bought their first house, and often you know their friends were, and so they were in their early twenties and would have parties a lot. And they had a party the night before Easter, and uh, decided to let their friends. Uh, their drunken friends hide our Easter eggs. That's what we, you know, we'd hide our dyed Easter eggs. And um, drunk adults don't hide Easter eggs where children will find them. <laughs> so that was a terrible idea. We were finding Easter eggs in the house for weeks and months later when <laughs> they would start to smell. So I don't know if that makes you feel any better, but. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does. Okay. So. You know, to some extent, our, our holidays were more colorful than most. So, you know, it just, yeah. it, it's, it's all perspective. Depends mm-hmm. on how you look at it. You yeah. know, I don't know that my kids would find a lot of joy in it, but there's some shit that I could definitely laugh about. So, um, yeah. And so, let's see. Um, my wor- my last drunk was what I was talking about. And it was, I'd gone out with Frontier Days. I that's kind of a side note too. Frontier Days uh, here, you know, is is the one big deal I think that Cheyenne gets to have, and especially for the partiers. And and so my medical records coincided very very closely with um, Cheyenne Frontier Days for years, for years and years and years. I always had some major injury during, you know, stitches or broken bones or something during Frontier Days because that was when things hit a level. And uh, and so I'd been out partying. It was Frontier Days and. Um, I, and I blacked out. I was in a, I blacked out a lot. I was a regular blackout drinker by this time. And, um, I was, I don't know a lot of what happened. I know that when I got home, I parked the car perfectly, which was awesome because I'd been driving, but somehow had broke the drive axle, um, blown up both the tires and there was cement in the tires. And so <laughs> I'm not sure what happened there. Um, I had been 86 from the green door for fighting with a stripper <laughs> and I had broke out all the windows in my house and I don't know why. And, you know, so the next day, obviously it was one of those things where, I mean, I felt pretty bad, pretty bad. I was pretty banged up and obviously really hung over. But the family was pissed, so like now I'm starting to make promises. I'm like, okay, you know, I'll I'll go back to those meetings. Um, but I remember my mom calling me and just saying, you know, what's different this time? Well, and I had to go stay at her house for a while because we weren't sure the law wasn't after me for something, so I went and stayed at her house for a while. But she called me that morning and she said, you know, what's what's different? And with those words, it was just the damnedest thing that there was a feeling inside you know, and, and our literature talks about that feeling Mm -hmm. that, you know, that, that, um, that just impending doom. And it was, it was there for me. And that was different than any other time. Mm -hmm. And at that point, um, I was truly willing. I was scared to death. I was scared to death that what that meant, you know, what is it going to mean that I don't drink anymore or Mm -hmm. that I even try not to drink anymore? What does that mean? And, uh, but I was willing and, that was what was different. And so I went to my first meeting um, two days after that because I tried to, I got into my negotiating phase with mom, you know, <laughs> after that. And she was like, nope, you got to go. And so, yeah, she dropped me off at my meeting. And I'd been to, to those 12 step meetings um, a bunch of times, but for some reason I wanted to do it right or I thought it was scholarly or something. So I show up with a whole stack of related literature <laughs> to the meeting. You know, I, I can't imagine what I look like walking in there like, I was the studious. Just got a bunch of books. <laughs> You're like, hey, look, I'm ready this right. time. Right, I had a yeah. notebook and pens, you know, all my stuff, and I was ready. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that's how I got back this time, and and um, my first year was rigorous. I was, uh, I did what I was told. I had a crazy sponsor um, in the program. Did what I was told. Uh, worked the steps to some extent, you know, to some extent. Not like, I mean, we'll talk more about that as we go on. I'm sure, but. 
I did the best I could with what I had at the time, I mm -hmm. guess. And um, but I really like the coins. Like you get little coins, and yeah. when you, when you get to landmarks in in the program, and I really like those. And and I would use those as uh, bartering material with my kids. I'd come home and and give those to them after I get them. And my daughter had a little bag that she kept them in. And uh, but they were chintzy ass like these little plastic, you know, <laughs> yeah. shitty coins. And I knew that at one year you got you one that was actually one. metal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I wanted that one year, you know, and for that reason. I mean, how screwed up is that? I'm not concerned about my sobriety or, you know, my life changing or my kids not having to deal with a drunk mom anymore. I just want that metal freaking coin because <laughs> that's, that's just how I am by nature. I want something, you know, for my, for all of my efforts. And so I got to that one year spot and I quit going to meetings, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I got normal. I got in a job and, um, was staying home with the kids when I was supposed to, for the most part. Still probably wasn't a model parent, but I was doing much better. Um, and getting normal was the worst thing that happened to me at mm. that point. You know, it really was because I really believed that I could live in the world like I saw my family and my friends and, you know, just my coworkers and stuff doing. I didn't need uh, any kind of a program or any kind of help anymore. I'd fixed it. You know, I was cured. And um, I stayed sober for five and a half more years after that, um, minus some outside issues. You know, I did like to smoke marijuana quite a bit and um, believe that that was okay. You know, it wasn't my problem. And so I did that. Um, and that worked great until it didn't. So in those five and a half years, you had pretty much not participated again at all. You were just Yep, just living life. Self-propulsion. Just living much. life. Yeah. Yep. And okay. doing the things that, you know, it's kind of like, our book talks about, too, that we did things um, while we were drinking. Uh, we tried drinking different ways, tried, you know, drinking different things, tried drinking different places, tried drinking different times, all of those kind of things. I kind of did that with life. You know, it was mm -hmm. like, well, I'll stay sober on the job or I'll stay sober on the relationship or I'll stay sober on the friendship or I'll stay sober on other people's problems. That was a good thing, too, you know, for me because I could get real grandiose in that. And so um, I stayed sober on a lot of those things and uh, until I didn't. Right. You know. Were you still married? Yeah. You were still married? I was still married. I stayed married. Um, let's see, that that was 1996, and I didn't get divorced until 2003, which uh, coincides with my relapse. So, yeah. Yeah, and you, you had gone back out, and that lasted a few months, right? Four months. Four months. Mm -hmm. And in that time, things got much worse, or pretty much like what it was before, or... Um, they, I, you know, it was pretty bad before I was, but I would say it got worse in the sense that the minute I went out, I was a blackout drinker again. And the minute that I went out, I was doing the really horrible, immoral things that I was doing mm -hmm. when I had quit. So, I mean, it was, it hadn't it picked settled up right down where at all. Off. It right. was, yeah, it was definitely. And I remember, um, I worked in a school at the time with, with young kids and I was a, an interpreter, and uh, I had a really young student. He was a kindergartner, and I remember driving drunk and thinking about it was like a Tuesday night or something. And I remember thinking about, man, how did I get back here? Hmm. Like this is not the world that I envisioned for myself. This is right back in the, you know, the crazy trailer park crack house shit that I was doing before I got sober. Yeah. And so then, when you got sober again, did you get back to? rigorous 12-step work or what kind of transpired at that point? Um, when I came back into the, into the program that time, I went back to the place that I knew, um, which was, you know, it, it, it doesn't have the best reputation in town, but man, it sobered up a lot of low bottom drunks in that time, you know, and it was, it was kind of a, it was kind of a clubhouse for lack of a better word. You could go sit there all day. It was open all the time. There was usually somebody in there and then they would have meetings, um, 12 step meetings throughout the day. And I knew that place. And so, because I had this belief at that time that, um, somehow I had done everything right in life. I'd, I'd learned to live life. I'd been cured of alcoholism and alcohol came out of the woodwork and got me. And I didn't know how it happened. And I really didn't. I mean, that was the honest to God truth. When I tell that story now, it feels really dishonest because it's really clear what happened. But, um, at the time it wasn't. And, so I was terrified. I mean, I sat, I sat in that room 
as much as I could. If I wasn't at work, I was there, you know, mm-hmm. and I wasn't at home with the kids and I wasn't at home with the husband and all of that kind of thing. Um, I was just afraid, you know. And so, yes, the, the short answer is yes. I, I really threw myself into the steps, found that, you know, there again, I find these crazy sponsors and, and my sponsor was batshit crazy, um, still is to this day. <laughs> But she loved to do 12-step calls, and so we did a lot of that, and I felt safe in that. You mm-hmm. know, I didn't care if we were going into the most sordid place on the planet. Um, if, I was, if I was doing that work or I was in that place, it, it felt safe because I still felt like alcohol wasn't going to come out of the woodwork to get me, which was the scariest thing to me at the time. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, what are you laughing yeah. at? I don't know. I was just listening and I'm honestly not thinking but of a question to ask. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. now my Normally Aaron does this thing where I think you would admit it. He, he asks a question and then while they're talking, he's him, he's thinking of what to ask next. So <laughs> yeah, I only half listen to most of the answers cause I'm just, yeah. Cause part of this deal is asking questions. So I'm always trying to think of the next good question to ask, but I mean, a lot of the cool thing is I've never heard your story and I, Kyle's heard some of it, but I've never heard any of it. So uh, I enjoy just being able to listen and hear these things. And we were talking about this before the podcast instead of, um, you know, when I've heard somebody's story, it's, I've got the parts that I like about it and I tend to want to drive the conversation that way. And, and that's all right. But I like this format too, when I haven't heard somebody's story and I can just listen to it and then ask questions about that. So, um, so from that point, you said you got heavily involved, um, was from there on have you just been a constant mainstay in the 12-step program um or did you have was it did you sit that first time you're like okay you got some relief you got through the work a little bit you felt a little bit better and then uh you know like you said that life starts happening and and then it seems to get in the way of the spiritual program of action that got us to this point what what happened to that next time so the next time, um, like I said, I had I had the crazy sponsor. I did the steps. I went through them pretty quickly, and I kind of sh- I kind of hesitate to say what I'm going to say next, but I'm just going to say it. I think that women in the program sell themselves short in the sense of being uh, dependent on the steps to the extent that we should be. I think we tend to mollycoddle each other and nurture each other through it to a point that. Um, it doesn't stick the way it should, you know? Um, and so I had a lot of that going on. I was really kind of allowed to run my own agenda through the steps. And, you know, I am a manipulative, I mean, I am a very manipulative person and I want things to feel good for me. You know, I want them to be easy for me. I want them to feel good for me. And so I want to do things my way. And largely that first time through, um, I was allowed to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I was allowed to do as much as I wanted to as far as the work was concerned. I was allowed to talk about the things I wanted to. I was allowed to um, half-ass things when I needed to or felt like I didn't want to, you know, get into that stuff. And um, and that was okay. I mean, I did the work. And so I think, you know, and I, and I tell people that now that I work with. If you do the work, that's a start. And, and you're going to find out where the deficiencies are. And I definitely did, you know. Anyway, um, to answer your question, Aaron, I... I I stayed around, I seem to like that six-year mark. That just seems to be a good thing for me. Um, but I, I stayed around largely on the fellowship. I love the fellowship. I love to hang out. I love to play softball. I love to play poker with other people. I mean, I really, all of my friend group was inside of um, the 12-step group. Um, and so I stuck around with that for a long time until the same thing kind of happened. Life just kind of got bigger than that, you know. And I had work, and I had home, and I had kids, and I had life problems, and all of that kind of stuff, um, and I'd gotten divorced and, you know, in another relationship, and um, that just all became more important, and this is going to sound really stupid and petty, but it's just the truth. The club that I went to, um, our town got new laws, and we weren't allowed to smoke, and so we couldn't smoke in the club anymore, so people just quit hanging out there all day, and because I was sober largely on the fellowship, the fellowship started to dwindle and I'm like, well, hell, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to not really do this. And so, um, at that six year mark, I just kind of quit going. I just did, um, and did life stuff and did that for about another six 
years. I'd like that six year mark. I don't know what that is. And, but anyway, so yeah, for about another six years and then my life fell apart again. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I didn't have program and I didn't have a fellowship and I didn't have anything. And it, it was terrifying. And, and I think more terrifying that time than it even was the first time. Yeah. So, <clears throat> and at that point, I think that's when you, you started coming back to 12-step mm-hmm. meetings, right? Yes. That yeah. you were like, oh, yeah, I know that there's an answer or whatever. I'm just going to go again, or what What did that look like? Kind of like that. <laughs> actually, no, um, I actually decided to drink. I made the conscious decision. My life changed completely. Um, the relationship blew up. The kids were out of the house. Um, some of their lives were a little bit crazy, and I was worried about that. Uh, I bought a house. I did all of these things that you know, grownups were supposed to do before realizing that I really didn't have a file for being a grownup, mm-hmm. that I'd still kind of run on life, um, really depending on other people to take care of my shit. You know, I didn't want responsibility and I didn't, I hadn't learned how to handle that kind of stuff. And so here I am with, you know, a broken heart and, um, a lot of responsibility. And I just decided, well, fuck it. I'm going to drink again because, you know, that's what we do (laughs) when we get pushed to that brink. And so I decided that's what I was going to do and, um, had kind of a white light experience at that point in realizing, um, that it wasn't going to work. You know, there was just an almost audible voice in my head that said, you've already done that. Mm -hmm. You know, you've already, you've already played that card. You've already done that and it won't work. And so while that was really a blessing, it was also super, super terrifying. Um, and that was at the point that I had, um, I decided to end my life and, um, was downstairs in the bedroom of my brand new house with a gun in my mouth. And, uh, were it not for the intervention of my dog at the time, I probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Um, but at the point that happened, um, it was in there again, it's the small things, but I looked at my dog and thought, who's going to take care of you? You know, here I am in this house that I just bought with these huge responsibilities but it was, it was that dog. And I was like, you know, who's going to take care of you? And I knew at that point that I got to find some way to handle some responsibility, you know? And, um, again, went back to, went back to meetings and, um, found all the same people sitting in all the same chairs that were there, you know, well, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. And they reached out just like they did before. Um, but I had a more mature and less frightened, I guess, view at that point and became more willing to do the work. And I knew right out of, out of the gate that that's what I needed to do. Oh, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just sort of wanted to interject maybe for people that, uh, because again, we have a lot of people that aren't in recovery that listen to the show and we're talking about the fellowship and we're talking about the work and it might not be real clear. And I've never taken the time to explain it, but, but our fellowship has, um, a program of recovery to treat that's that is what that's wrong with us and um as our literature literature has laid it out those are the steps and um our literature contains directions on how to do those steps and so when we refer to the work that's what we're talking about and then there's the fellowship as a whole and that's made up of all of the members and um they're good and they're loving people and they hang out and they hang out in, in clubhouses like Jenny was talking about. And uh, it's easy to get into those rooms and feed off of that energy and uh, just go into the meetings and talk about my troubles and uh, use that as a, as a substitute for actually take, taking the steps and doing the work. And, and I've done it, you know, that first time in sobriety. And, um, and then, and that's the fellowship. And when I, I believe when you're talking about staying sober on the fellowship, it's something along those lines, right? Versus going through the work. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and carrying on in the work, you know, the part of our work is to carry that message, uh, ongoing, no matter how much time we have in the program and it's essential, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, I've got a lot of time bouncing around doing this thing and I can speak to that. Absolutely. That, you know, um, there are days when I probably need to do a first step or I need to do a third step or whatever that is. Um, but what the, what the book tells me and what works for me, because that stuff will seem smaller. I won't really know how to, how to apply it at the time by myself in my own little world. But if I work with another, uh, another member of the program, 
it's insurance. It mm-hmm. will work, you know, and it, it doesn't matter what step I'm doing or what step I'm on because I'm on that last one and that last one for me today is essential. Right. You know. So. Yeah. And I think when, um, when we, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I think when you came back, you dove headfirst into the 12 step, if I remember right, because I think I, you and I crossed paths for the first time probably six months after you started coming back into the rooms and stuff. And I just remember being like, holy shit, this chick is legit, you know, because you were, you were working with others. You were, you know, a, a, one of our mutual friends, which is your sponsor, Aaron, was throwing ladies your way, I think. And, uh, you know, you were, you were like doing the thing. And I was like, this is the deal because that's not always the case. Kind of like you had alluded to. Um, I mean, I just remember being like, holy shit, Jenny is on fire. She's doing the 12 step, which isn't always, you know, like you don't see that all the time. There's a lot of people that don't participate as much as I think you were at that time. Is that, and I really, what I'm saying, is that accurate that that was what you did was dive back into that part of the program? That is accurate. And I would like to take all that glory on my own shoulders because that's what I do too. But (laughs) Um, the person you're talking about that does throw a lot of those people at me still to this day and did at the time was the first person I called after my experience in the basement. And I said, look, you know, I'm broken and I'm sad and I'm hurting and, um, I don't know what to do. And so he sent me this thing on an, on emotional sobriety that Bill Wilson wrote that talked about working with others. And I'm like, you know, really? Like, I just told you that I'm in a lot of pain and I would really like you to co-sign some of my shit and maybe, you know, buy me some ice cream or something, you know? (laughs) But his suggestion right off the bat was, if you want this to get better, this is what you will do. And so um, I grabbed another female that that is in the program and went through the steps inside of probably eight weeks. Again, all 12 steps for myself. And then, yeah, just started... You know, and I mean, it was to the point that this person would call me and I still have this sponsee today, but would call me and say, um, I need you to talk to this person on the phone. And then I would hear him talking to that person uh, in real time there and say, um, this is your new sponsor. Yeah. And I'm like, wow. (laughs) And I hadn't even heard this person's voice or name yet, you know, and and I still have that sponsee today. But yeah, that that has definitely been the lifeblood of my program this time is is uh, helping others. And, you know, I think that there are some of us that aren't as selfish as I am and maybe you don't need it as much as I do, but I, that's my gig. Like I have to stay focused on, on working with others. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. The the one thing that I was going to say, um, again, cause you're, you're talking about, you know, being six years sober or whatever it was at the time and down in the basement, um, with a gun, you know, getting ready to kill yourself. And, um, that was actually 12 years sober. Oh, yeah. 12 years sober. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the thing is, it makes perfect sense to me, and you're not the only one of us that I've heard that has this experience, um, being completely untreated, you know, you know, sober but untreated. And, um, again, just for the people that might not be familiar with this that are listening, like um, what, what the deal is is for me and my addiction um, – it's an internal condition, you know, it's not the things that are outside of me, um, for, you know, cause people might be wondering, well, how could you be 12 years away from a drink and, and thinking about killing yourself? But, uh, it's an internal condition that causes me to use opiates in the first place. Uh, it's nothing going on outside of me. You know, our literature refers to it as a spiritual malady, but it's this underlying condition, you know, and when we get through and our program of action treats that, you know, and like, um, it talks about the drug or the alcohol just being a symptom of our illness. So simply removing those things from our life is not enough to treat what's wrong with us, right? It's got to be this, this spiritual program of action that has been laid out to us. So, uh, you know, and I'm, the reason why I'm saying this is a way that would make sense for, you know, somebody that doesn't, has never had any experience with alcoholism or addiction, you know, wondering, well, if you haven't had a drink in 12 years, um, how could you be sitting there suicidal? But I know full well, <laughs> you know, what, you know, why something like that could happen. And I've heard it from enough alcoholics and addicts that weren't treat that weren't treating, you know, that what was wrong with them have that same experience. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, and I think that we talk a lot about the spiritual condition or the spiritual malady and, you know, <sighs> And I don't know because I've never got to the luxury of being a normal person, but my understanding of it or my thoughts about it kind of are that, that they might have 
or they, you know, they might have the ability to, to connect with something bigger than themselves just on a regular basis. Like it's just innate or to some extent, or there's an understanding or a, or a feeling or a desire. And I, I think the mechanics in me are broken for that. <laughs> and so I have to consciously do that or I am really screwed, you know? And, right. and, um, during that period of time, um, between leaving the fellowship because, you know, the fellowship was that higher power that whatever for me for a long time. Then I had the relationship that was that higher power for me for a long time. And then, um, I had nothing, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I had not had God for a long time for a long time. And so at least that conscious contact, I had the belief, belief in God is great. You know, that's, that's great. Um, but I hadn't had that connection and that was what was missing. And for me, um, I don't, I don't really understand why it works, but the way that our program is put together, if I do those things, it creates that connection for me. Like I don't have to use Jenny's thinking to try to, to connect with God, you know, because it doesn't work. It, it connects me with things like suicide and yeah. alcohol and, you know, road trips to Mexico that I don't remember. So, <laughs> you know, that's what happens for me when I'm on my best thinking. But if I do that program somehow, I find that spiritual connection and Mm -hmm. and it's just an amazing thing to me and something that I just have to trust. I don't have to, I don't even care to know why anymore. Yeah. You know, I just trust that it will and it does. Yeah. And you, um, you, I've listened to you shared about trusting that now with your son, you know, like, and, and that process of like, okay, he's just as hopeless as we all are, you know, and you being able to, you know, and, and your struggles with that because you're his mom, you know? And so it's like, well, I want to save him again. You know, I would think like for me, it's, what is that like having to watch that and then watch him now recover? Uh, Yeah. There's so many fun and awesome dynamics to that whole mess. Um, so I figured out when my son was probably about 20 I don't know, in his early 20s, um, that he probably had some similar issues that I did. I, I could see it in him. It was like, in a, and I've told people this, it was like looking in a mirror. Um, but because I have this gift of denial, and sometimes it is um, a gift, I, I put that on the back burner for a long time um, until his life got to a point where he couldn't put it on the back burner anymore. And... Um, well, actually, turn back a little bit before that because it, it got, his alcoholism got extremely accelerated. And, you know, our literature talks about the tornado. And I mean, oh my God, like this kid was just ridiculous. And I went into full, I tell him all the time, I joke with him because I tell him how close he got me to going to Al Anon, you know. <laughs> I know we're not affiliated, but sorry to use the name. But yeah, it, I, and I, it pissed me off. I was like, dude. I don't ever want to be that close to having to go to that other program again. Like that was screwed up because I was a hot mess, man. I was so, I was going to solve all his problems. I was going to save him. If I had to lock him in a closet, I was going to do that. I knew none of this stuff worked. I mean, I'd been there. Um, so we went through that whole thing and then on his own, like we all do, he figured out that, um, he might need to come back. He might have a problem with alcohol. He might need to come back and try to try to be involved in the program. And, um, I remember going to that first meeting after my first meeting after um, him making that decision on my own, like he wasn't with me and uh, having that realization that like I'd been rolling through recovery, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I turn into kind of a pillar of, of uh, spirituality, you know, in this program a lot. And, uh, and I'd been on one of those deals, you know, I'm working with others and I got all the right answers and I'm sharing at meetings and I got all the right answers and all this shit happens, and I don't have any of the right answers, you know. Um, and the reason I believe that I feel that content in my program is because my conscious contact with God is really good, number one. And number two, I believe God is just all things and bigger than anything. And if you want to make your God small, I can tell you from personal experience, um, give your kid to him. Because all of a sudden... It was like, okay, I, I believed wholeheartedly that God's shoulders were big enough for Jenny. Mm-hmm. I did not know that I believed that God's shoulders were big enough for Zach. You know, and so I, uh, I, I got really scared. I, and I ran on fear for a long time. Um, thank God that there are, you know, you and, and, uh, and some other people that we know in this program that kind of 
got around that kid and, and I trusted that, you know, and I, and I still am fallible in that. I, I trust God. I, uh, I, I talk to God a lot. I believe that God shoulders all things, but I do a little bit better when I can have tangible people that I can look at and see that actually are putting their hands on that thing I care about. And so, you know, that helped a whole bunch, but yeah, I, my faith was shaken. Yeah. Definitely. When Zach came in. So absolutely. And then I think, um, I don't know, maybe maybe I don't know, but I think you were talking recently about watching him start because he's been through the work now and he's really started to get into the uh, latter part of the steps. And I think you were kind of talking the other week about having some new experience with that, like 11 step stuff as well, watching him kind of do it about like, you know, on awakening and some of that stuff too, oh, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it's kind of... <laughs> You know, I'd be lying if I didn't say there was some competitive nature to it. There really is. There, and it, and I, I want him to be well. This is just kind of the the paradox of the whole thing because I want him to be well more than anything in the world. I would I would give my own life to have him be well, absolutely. But on the other hand, when he calls me on shit, like when he, I'll be talking smack about somebody or you know, just being totally intolerant and he'll say well are you working a program or maybe you need to do a tent step or you know and I'm like dude don't do that like I'm your mom you don't get to do that you know but it really is helpful and and there is that competitive nature in it um but on the other hand is you know I want I want to be an example for him like we come in here and we love other other alcoholics we do and we want to be an example for the people that we we sponsor and we help and we and we just all other all other people in recovery I think we want to be an example to some extent but that grows even more when it's when it's your own kid Mm. you know and so I really do want to do better and um and I've prayed about that a lot and been given that gift I'm he works with some really great people who have some different views on things and really have tweaked how I even work with other people Mm -hmm. um it's kind of cool getting to be intimate with a with a male perspective on that because it's it's harsher it's to the point and it's logical and I love that about guys like women are so freaking emotional like everything is about your emotions and everything is about how you feel about how I feel about you I don't care how you feel about you you know (laughs) I'm more like that and I like that logical um approach to things and I've got to to be exposed to that a lot more through watching his sponsorship and and then kind of running in some of the same groups and things like that and the other day (laughs) He did a tenth step with me the other day, and that was really kind of weird. But man, I it, it's one of those moments where like I'm trusting God mm. because I look at him and I'm like, that, he's got it. Like he he gets this thing. Yeah, you know it works. It works for Zach too. You know as yeah. much as it works for Kyle or or Brian or Mike or Joe or whoever, it works for Zach too. And that was really I, I get those gifts along the way. You know, just to kind of see that that he's okay and you know god is big enough for zach too so that's so awesome yeah kyle and i are pretty competitive in our 12 steps too uh (laughs) kyle's probably a little better at the 11 step but i'm i'm definitely saying the 10 step champion between you and i yeah yeah i have a sponsee that's the top notch 10 step champion which is zach's sponsor so he he is a killer at that so he does 10 steps he can put us all to shame yeah he walks circles around me i'm like damn it maybe i should be doing more of these more yeah but um the other thing i was going to ask about we're we're like 45 minutes in already this thing's kind of like a time warp you go oh wow this thing's going fast so uh i was going to ask you about your work life aaron and i joke quite a bit about having, you know, like how does spiritually principled living apply to your work life? And I don't know how much you want to shine your light on what you do for work, but I'll let you kind of talk about that and, you know, what what you get to do and if the program applies there too. I would think it does. I would think it's challenging though. It does, you know, and I think that we start to realize, um, I think for us to realize, for me anyway, for me to realize how much the program works in my work life or my relationship life or my parenting life or anything is to uh, first realize that it's not working in there, <laughs> right. you know, and then we get those real screwed up things that start to happen. Um, I work in in, uh, in family services, um, and right now, like, my main job is as a juvenile probation officer, and then I also do some on-call work for uh, Child Protective Services, and I, I find that the program works 
for me, you know, I have to have it in, in both of those things. And the biggest thing that I have to have in both of those things is realizing how much of that is absolutely none of my business Mm -hmm. and how much of that, um, is, is God's control. You know, I have a friend in the program. We have a mutual friend in the program that tells me all the time, you know, regardless of who I'm coming in freaking out about that they have a God and I'm not it, you know, and, and that's something I have to remember pretty consistently because, um, I see these, these kids come in and the cool thing is where I feel like my gift really is in that, um, is, you know, we, part of our literature says that we won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. And a lot of the kids I work with now are in that age group of when I got caught with all the alcohol in my, in my locker and then, you know, right. ended up going to Pathfinder. <laughs> so I, we've, I, we've come full circle. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 And I don't, I don't give them the luxury of half days off school to go sit in meetings. And that's probably some of my experience <laughs> not working in their favor. Um, but I do relate well, I think, to where they are, mm-hmm. you know, to where they are and, and understand that probably this stuff that's going in their ears isn't going to make a huge difference. We do have one mutual friend in the program that I know recovered when they were 17 years old and yeah. he's older than me now. And, and so it does happen, but for the most part, you know, they may not be ready and that's okay. But if I can get some recovery based stuff in there for them, it's a seed, you know, it's, it's that thing that they can carry along with them. And, um, and I think the bigger part of it is just understanding that, you know, they're kids and they're fallible and it's not their fault. You know, it's not their fault. And I don't have an, it's no reflection on me. Like that's a big thing, you know, that, that how well they do any of that stuff is a reflection on them and where they're at. And it doesn't have anything to do with me, yeah. you know? So if I can just be of service, that's, that's all I can do. Yeah. I was just going to say that's good perspective for working with a sponsee too is like, oh yeah, what they're doing is not a reflection of me where I want it to be, right? That's really hard though. You know it is, Kyle. You know that's really hard. I struggle with it all the time. Because you'll always get the idiot (laughs) who will go and say, yeah, Kyle's my sponsor (laughs) and you know. Yeah, I have a few of those. I eat six raw eggs in the morning to stay sober. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, damn it, where did did I say? Yeah, so that's one of those hard things. But I try to keep that in perspective of like, oh yeah, like, that guy is doing his program. It's not a direct reflection, but for whatever reason, that's still, I don't know, that's good perspective to have in, in all of my life, you know, like right. same with Megan, you know, like what she does in her life isn't a real perspective of what I, you know what I mean? Like just living that way in life is important to understand like, oh yeah, I'm not really responsible for anyone, <laughs> including myself most of the time. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And not being emotionally out to, or attached to the outcomes, yeah. you know, because mm-hmm. I, I have still a problem today with, I, I want people to like me, you mm-hmm. know, and so I, I get these sponsees and I don't, you know, I've got a disease that almost killed me. Like I know it almost killed me. I'm really clear on that. I've been doing this for a minute. Um, I've seen it kill people that I love. It's serious shit. Uh, but I will decide that the reason that they won't work with me has nothing to do with the fact that they have a disease that's going to kill them. It's that they um, don't like me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> so good. Sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. It, so the ego is still alive and well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, mine, mine, mine what crops up when I start sweating when somebody else is talking means my, I might have a problem with self-centeredness. Yeah, when you're like, don't. How people might perceive me based on what they're saying. Yeah, <laughs> like they're going to think I'm a terrible sponsor because yeah. this guy. <laughs> yeah. I, should I tell uh, this guy to not to say anything? <laughs> but uh, the one uh, thing that I was going to ask you about too before we finish up was a couple, couple weeks ago, at our Wednesday thing, you'd said you'd had a couple of days off and uh, took a couple of days off work and got out and got up and got in nature. Is that is that something that you do to recreate, or what what do you do in your free time? Like, how do you regenerate? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know, it, pretty much everything that I do, whether it's work or program or things like that, has to do with people, and um, which is a, a miracle within itself because I don't like people. I really don't <laughs> yeah. like I I don't deal well with people and I'm not, (laughs) I'm not, um, I don't play well with others, but I, you know, I've learned to fake it really well. So I, I spend a lot of time doing that, but I really just ache for those times when I can be alone and just take the dogs and go up and hike or, or fish or do that kind of stuff. That is, that's my, um, connect with, with God. You know, that's when I get to kind of 
commune mm-hmm. and, and just, and be, and, and I absolutely, you know, and the program has given me the ability to do those things, you know, and I think I hear you guys on this podcast talk about that a lot and it's, um, not just the program, it recovery itself, you know, has given me the ability to enjoy those things. Um, before I came into, or before I got sober, I loved those things. I still love to fish. I love to go into the mountains, but I was loaded, you know, and I, and I wouldn't get a great experience out of doing that. Um, and if I tried to do it, not being loaded, I wouldn't get a great experience out of doing that because all I'd be thinking about was, you know, I should be somewhere else or this is wrong or, you know, all those kind of things, those insecurities we have that we put, um, substances in there to numb out. And so, Today, I, I get that. I get to hang out and be comfortable in my skin no matter where I am, you know, and, and that's a pretty cool thing for somebody like me. Um, there's no, I, I share this a lot, but there is just absolutely no clear path from where I came from to where I am now. Like, I, I can't even paint a picture accurately, I don't think, for you of the person that, that I was before I found a way to stay sober, you know. Yeah. Um, I met a person in this program that still means a ton to me and he's out in Nevada now and uh, he would he would tell this story all the time um, about he, he had a little girl and uh, his daughter and he was he was sober at the time but he had come home from work and you know he's working like 16 hour days and he'd come home from work and they lived kind of out in the country and been raining and raining and raining and um, he got his Cadillac stuck on this road and uh got out of the car and was, you know, pissed and kicking around the car and all of this stuff and just couldn't, couldn't hardly stand it. And his little girl comes running out in her nightgown. Um, she'd just been playing and just hair all messed up and whatever. And, and was just so excited to see him, you know, and he was just bitching and kicking around and hardly even noticed she was standing there. And she was just really, really, really excited about something. And he just couldn't see it. He's like, I just can't focus on that right now. Can't you see the car stuck? Can't you see I'm a foot deep in mud? What the hell am I going to do about this? My shoes are dirty, you know, all this stuff. And, and, uh, and she finally teared up and she said, but daddy, look at the rainbow, you know? And she was just so excited, just so completely excited. Mm -hmm. And he said, at that point, I realized that I needed to have the ability to look at the rainbows rather than the ruts. And, you know, that stuck with me ever since. And that's what this program gives me. It gives me the ability to see all of those things in life that, that I didn't even know existed, Mm -hmm. you know? I didn't mm-hmm. even because I have a tendency to focus on the negative, and I don't have to do that today, and that's pretty cool. That's a- pretty cool for someone like me. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just want to say thank you. You're you're one of my favorite ladies that I've met in the program, and I love that. You know that you're just so engaged, and you're always working with people and stuff, and you know your your story is inspiring and stuff. So I just wanted to say thank you for being a part of our our podcast and and being willing to do it so oh absolutely thank you guys for doing this i think it's providing such a service you know it just kind of puts a real a real spin on this whole thing and and it brings it down to life stuff and that's that's what it is you know it's, mm-hmm. it's just that taking that stigma away and integrating uh not only recovery but but use into into reality this yeah. is you know something's all around us and it's life absolutely mm-hmm. yeah yeah thanks good do you want to plug our shit oh yeah we have a we have a email <laughs> Um, it's recoveredaf at gmail.com. Recoveredaf podcast oh, fuck. at gmail.com. It's <laughs> this, all good. This is why you have to do this. Yeah, dude. and you can find us on all of the platforms like uh, the iTunes and uh, the podcast app and Stitcher and all of those. So, um, but thanks again, Jenny. Yeah, thanks for being here. That was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you.